on this episode of Quantum Week, December 25th through 31st, 1988. Quantum Week. Quantum Week. Welcome to Quantum Week. I'm Matt. I'm Chris. Quantum Week is a show in which Chris and I leap into a random week of a random year, and we talk about the movies, the music, the headlines, everything that's happening during that time period. To make it unique, and we are in December 1988 with very special guest, uh, Mike Petralia, known as Trags. Trags has covered Boston sports since 1993, and he's been a sports columnist for CLNS Media since 2017. I follow him on Twitter, at Trags. You should follow him on Twitter, at Trags. Trags, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate being here uh, myself, guys. This is a privilege and an honor, and I mean that from the bottom of my media heart. I, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm so happy that you're a fan of the show. It's pretty amazing. Huge. Yes. And it was so kind of you to reach out uh, to me during our, our Lamley uh, ridiculousness <laughs> <The> Lamley <War. laughs> and give me a support in my darkest hour, by the way, I was pretty beat uh, up when you reached out. I am uh, happy to give support to somebody who uh, was on the right side, the absolute right side. Of the <laughs> I, just hope, I just hope the Lamley doesn't come after me because S.E. Robinson kind of scared me into thinking that uh, they have their ways of uh, coming after me. I think they're deflated at this point and yeah, they're, let, they've moved on to someone else. Let's let Sleeping Lambs lie. That's all right, it. all right. Should we get yeah, into the movie then? Fair Absolutely. Enough. So we are in the last week of uh, 1988 and our movie uh, is uh, the best picture winner that year, Rain Man, which Trags chose. Um, Rain Man uh, is a uh, a very worthy Best Picture winner. Uh, Trags, what you chose this obviously for a reason. What's your take on Rain Man? So um, obviously an incredible cast, but uh, half of the movie takes place in my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, when I found that out, uh, I really had to uh, go see it. And Dustin Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman uh, was pretty amazing. I thought I actually think that that is uh, arguably his best performance in his career. I think he's phenomenal in the film. That's a big so so Dustin Hoffman. This is the end of a great run for him. Uh, if we want to go down the Dustin Hoffman road, we certainly yeah, sure. Here. I mean, we're here. I mean, so this is probably his last great role. Um, you know, he obviously gets starts to you know in the Graduate, the Graduate, and, of course, uh, and uh, follows that up you know as Razzo Rizzo. Uh, and he does he in 1974 he gets nominated you know for Lenny. So I mean, mm. and you know, and, and then he follows it up all all the President's Men, uh, Kramer vs Kramer, which he wins the Oscar for. Oh yeah, in Tootsie. I mean, he this is a run. You know, Dustin Hoffman doesn't get talked about enough. He doesn't nowadays. He's not in the same echelon as, as some like of the great or, right, or Pacino. Right, exactly. But he he has every he has two Oscars. Pacino only has one, mm-hmm. uh, and he was nominated seven times. Uh, but this is probably his last great role. I don't know if I'd say it's his best. Um, what do you love so much about the role of tracks? So I just think it was so out of character from other characters he's portrayed or he did portray earlier in his career. I just thought it was um, something where he had to learn, you know, to be, you know, that kind of character, you know, and obviously the character he played uh, was somebody who was on the spectrum. And yeah, yeah, and I saw I, that he really had to study to do this. I know that he spent some time with with some folks. Yes. Yeah, um, I don't know if he. So the I think his character is kind of a composite. It seemed like it was a composite of two people that um, one of the writers knew. Not Ron Bass, but the other guy. Oh, Moro is the yeah. writer. So I want. I don't. I didn't see if he spent time with with one of those folks. He did. Oh, he did. Okay. Yep. Yeah. The real. I think it was. Uh, I'm sorry. The 
gentleman's name was Kim, who uh, Moro... Kim Peek, isn't Kim it? Kim Peek, yes. Yep. Yep. And uh, Hoffman did spend time with Kim Peek as well as some other people uh, as well that were uh, you know on the spectrum as well. Uh, and uh, he, he's, a, he's great in this. I think Dustin Hoffman's phenomenal. This movie, I will say off the top, is a very good movie. Very good. Um, but it's, I don't think it's a great movie. It's very good. But the performances... I don't think it's, I think it's not very well directed. I think the performances, mm. though, are... About as good as you're going to get. Even Hoffman. Cruz? I think Cruz is better than Hoffman in this. You do? Yeah. I think he's mm, young. I don't know. I, I beg to differ on that you one. But, I, 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 but but full disclosure here, sure. guys, I'm not a particularly big Tom Cruise fan. Not early in his career. I think he's a, a, a fine actor. I think he's, you know, certainly uh, has earned his... Uh, uh, in a reputation as one of the leading men in Hollywood. I get all of that. Okay. But in terms of his range, that's where Dustin Hoffman to me blows him off the uh, screen in this one. Well, Chris Chris, Hoffman's range is unbelievable. See, I think his range is great. And uh, your range is, is absolutely a great word for it. Especially when you consider like Tootsie, where he plays a really smart guy, uh, uh, you know, a very worldly guy, a very sophisticated guy. And then in this, he's obviously playing someone very different, still brilliant, obviously, but in a different way. The range though, in this role is, 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 is nil. I mean, he's, by the character himself doesn't do very yeah, much. Yeah. Uh, the Tom Cruise character, though, you see a, a credible range of emotion and he's playing someone who's kind of despicable. Like, oh, he's totally despicable. Like, and he does that really well. Like cock, like cocky, shady bastard. Really he does that ballsy really well. move when you consider where he was at his career. He just did Top Gun. Yeah. I mean, he's basically the golden child of Hollywood and he plays basically an asshole. Yeah. Uh, for two hours and 15 minutes. And that's kind of, I really admire a choice like that. Do you think that he was more deserving of a... Uh, he didn't even get nominated. He didn't get nominated. I, I think he was. I, I, I really... I'm, 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 there's two kind of camps here. There is a camp that thinks that Dustin Hoffman, you know, Trax is kind of in that camp for sure. Yeah. And there's a camp that we... I, I will say, though, we're comparing greatness. Like, Cruz yes, and Hoffman are I, both amazing in this. Yeah. No argument there. Yeah. I, I mean, so, I mean, you're basically saying, like, 27 Yankees are the, you know, the 54, <laughs> you know, or, you know, or whatever, right? You know, it, what are we doing here? You know, but, but I, I do think both are amazing, especially when you consider the fact that Levinson, I don't think, did a very good job with this. Uh, so you have those two guys really hitting just Grand Slam after Grand what Slam. Was, what did you think was an issue with the directing? Sure. So let's take one scene in particular and break it down. So there's a scene near the end of the movie where uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman's character, you know, Raymond Babbitt, uh, he puts something in a toaster oven. And yeah, the coaster right. oven on fire, yeah. right? Or yeah. the smoke. So think about how that scene's shot for a second. So it's you see him uh, put the, the, the in a toaster oven. He it kind of doesn't work, and he yeah. walks away. And the, the camera then does these really lazy shots. It then hits Hoffman, and then there's a shot of the toaster oven mm. back to Hoffman. A shot of the toaster oven again with more smoke, and then it has this weird thing where Tom Cruise comes in to save the day, and it's a very oddly shot. Yeah. Why not just make that a one shot? So scroll it back. Have one major shot. Dustin Hoffman's because he's standing. He's just in the kitchen. He's and, not going very far. And he's a very good actor. He can yeah, pull he this is. off. Yeah, I think of he can act for two minutes. Right. And have him just do it all. And you can see the smoke start to billow. And it, the tension would have really been raised, as opposed to these very made-for-TV shots where of a toaster oven. Like, what are we doing here? Like, that's, <laughs> it's a really lazy. It's a beautiful toaster. It's a really lazy directing job on that end. And I think some of the other shots weren't great. This is a, a road picture. It is that, actually. Un- I was thinking about that. When we were watching. It's like. Uh, We've watched a few, like uh, oh, Field yeah. of Dreams is, a ro- is like, it is. Is a, you know, but kind this of is, similar. This is like across the country, like yeah. from Cincinnati to, to LA. Right. Uh, there is that great shot of the two of them going down the escalator in the suits. That's yep. a great yeah, shot. Yeah, it is a great one. But it other than great. that, what did you think about Trags, about Levinson's directing here? Um, I, I thought I was, you know, right down the middle. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I am uh, some great movie critic because I'm not. 
uh, and I'm, I'm not going to talk out my ass when I just just don't know. But I, <laughs> I think Barry Levinson, you know, is one of the, the very best directors in Hollywood, obviously. But um, I think in this movie, I will tell you that I don't remember a particular scene and I usually do like, yeah, yeah. like last week I went back and watched apocalypse now and oh, yeah. I know we're, <laughs> we're talking about uh, grapes and apples, right? Or apples and oranges, whatever. But um, all you, one of the things you definitely remember about that movie is the way it was shot. I remember nothing about the way rain man was particularly shot. I just remember the roles and, and how the actors uh, brought out the best in the characters. That's what I remember about that movie. What I, one of the things that, that I thought was good about the direction in this is they, he does a really good job showing like sort of the, the uncomfortableness of the stimulus that one might experience if they were on the spectrum. Like the way, even the way that they were interacting with each other, Cruz and, and Hoffman, uh, a lot of it in the beginning of the film is bickering back and forth, bicker, 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 while things are happening really fast. And to me, I was like, okay. And, and, and you get to a point later yeah. on where there's some resolution between the two characters. And uh, I think it's probably after, um, after uh, Cruz recognizes that Raymond, uh, Raymond is Rain Man. Yes. Um, he gets a lot quieter. Things get a lot quieter, sure. a lot more still. Right. So I really like the way that, that that happened in the film. Well, uh, and to me, that's kind of the, I guess the beauty of the movie is you see Cruz, Cruz's act, um, character acting the way we would when we first meet somebody on the spectrum. And then when he spends more time around them, he begins to understand them more. And obviously that's a main, you know, element of the movie. Absolutely. I've been watching this movie, you know, obviously it came out in 88, 88 yeah. uh, you know, it's the week we're in here. So I was eight when it came out. I saw it shortly after that. So I've been watching this movie for 30 years. Right. It's a movie I really do like a lot. Yeah. Uh, so it's a movie I, I do go back and revisit it a lot. And because of the structure of the movie being such a character piece, you can go back and rewatch it a lot. It's not so much plot driven. It's more of these two people and yeah. you just enjoy being around them. Uh, and I, I remember being younger, I was really drawn more to, I could kind of relate more to the Tom Cruise character the older I get, the more I just really just have great sympathy for the Raymond Babbitt character. Sure. Where, you know, before I'm like, kind of like, I could just, I don't know, I felt, I'm not going to say, I just, I just felt, I've, I've been that young, angry guy before that Tom Cruise is in the beginning of this movie. And he's just like mad. He's has no patience. He's frustrated. Yeah. And by the end, you know, he does come around, but, but now the older I get though, the more I'm like, oh man, like this guy just wants to be left alone. Like he, this guy just wants his routine. Like, yeah. You know, oh, every every time Cruz kind of does something wrong to Ray, I wince. And it's like, ah, oh, it yeah. kind of stings yeah, yeah. a little bit just because you get older. And it's funny how these characters are so good. They hit you in different ways the older you get. You also, I know that you, we've talked about Cruz before. I can't remember if we, did we see him in a film maybe, but you, you thought that Cruz was way, uh, took way more chances as a younger actor than he does yeah. now. He's just basically an act, like an action star. Do you like, this movie you, made me angry a little bit. Because uh, of that? Yeah. Because you're like, he's a good actor. He should be doing Absolutely. So they, yeah. you know, look at his career for a second. So when he's doing this, he just finished the color of money. He follows, yeah. he follows this yep. movie up with, which got, uh, which won Newman an Oscar. He follows this movie up with born on the 4th of July, which got him a nomination, right. got the picture nomination, you know, you go through that list there, you know, through the nineties, he's constantly in movies that were nominated for best picture or were very highly acclaimed ending kind of with Magnolia in 99. And then, um, and then he ends up becoming a mission impossible action yeah. star. But think about it. He's this, roughly the same age as Dustin Hoffman is here. And Dustin Hoffman uh, just had a run 
where he was in things like, like a 20 year run Kramer versus, yeah. but even right. those last 10 years yeah. he's in, he won two Oscars those last 10 years between right. 79 and 88. He's in Kramer versus Kramer. He's in Tootsie. He's, he's a great actor at the peak of his powers. Tom Cruise wasted the, those same 10 years. Yeah. Jumping off. He's just doing physical shit, stuff. What the right. fuck he's doing? Yeah. So that, I, yeah, go ahead tracks. No, I would just say that, you know, talking about born on the 4th of July, I actually think in some ways that's better acting than Top Gun. And oh, I agree. I 100%. Yeah. Of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Much better acting. Yes. And, 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 and then the funny thing about Tom Cruise or the odd thing about Tom Cruise is it seems like um, his financial success and his box office success is inversely proportional to his acting success. And it's just the way his career has panned out. And obviously he is a mega, mega, mega star, you know, yeah. one of the probably 10 most successful movie stars of all time. Absolutely. Right. I don't think that's hyperbole, nope. but it's just interesting to me that if you're talking about his critical acting performances, his best performances are in the movies that probably are not even in the top 10, top 15 of his best grossing movies. Oh, I'd agree. I, and I don't think that's necessarily a strange thing for a, a actor that has, probably not. because those movies usually are smaller. They're usually more like character driven pieces. This movie though was a hit, um, which is, you know, it was yeah, a, 300 million, I think. Uh, I don't know what the domestic was. Yeah, it's 330 or something. It, international. This movie made a ton of money, yeah. you know, back then, which is, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a ton of money in 1988. It's true. And, um, you know, that's great to see that people actually went out and saw a small, you know, basically buddy movie, uh, right. you know, that does a right. road trip with these two characters that had no IP, no one knew. You don't see movies like this made today. Uh, you don't see as many of them made today, and that's a shame because of the Marvel takeover and everything. Um, right. uh, this is a great example of an adult drama that you watch. You're captivated people that you had no idea about when you went into the theater, yep. and you walk out loving both of them, uh, and that's what these great performances can do. I think Cruz has just become an act, like a speed junkie. He must just he loves to do the stunts. He must just get off like putting pushing himself to that type of limit. Specific, you know, particularly to that really has a ton, like a shelf on it. You can only do those those like the action films, you can really do those stunts until you're a certain amount of age. And then He's, you know, it's yeah. kinda, you're kind of getting there and then it's got to be over. Maybe he'll go back to more cerebral stuff later on in his career. Uh, let's talk Barry Levinson for a second. Yeah, sure. So I don't think Barry Levinson does a good job with this movie. Having said that, I think Barry Levinson is a good director. Um, I was going to ask you which ones you thought are better. I saw, you know, I, I know you like sleepers a lot. So I love sleepers. Yeah, it's a great film. I think he does an amazing job with the natural. See, I don't, I don't, I just, I know I saw that years and years ago. I just can't recall. It's beautifully directed. It? It's really well done. I think the, I think Diner is a, is a good, have you seen Diner Tracks or The Natural? Uh, the Natural, uh, definitely. Uh, Diner, I think I did see, but I, I don't remember it. Yeah, it's a I'm quiet like movie. Should. It's about like these guys, in the early twenties in uh, Baltimore. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a good, it's a good movie, but it's, but The Natural though is beautifully directed. Yeah. Um, I mean that, that movie's gorgeous to look at. This movie, not so much. Uh, and Sleepers is, is I, I think, one of his best movies. I'm probably alone on that island. That's okay. But uh, Sleepers is phenomenal. He, and he does a great job directing that. Yeah. And he also, did he win for Bugsy too? Did he win? He a, got nominated for Bugsy. He won yeah. for this. Oh, no, he won for this. Uh, well, this thing got eight noms and, and won four yeah. Oscars. I mean. Uh, and yeah, and four major Oscars. Right. Yeah. It wasn't like it won for like some weird tech award. No. Yeah, um, he, he won for, oh, Academy Award for Best Director for this for Rain Man. Absolutely. Best Director. And then, uh, and he was nominated for Bugsy as well, um, which is a beautifully shot movie too. I remember I um, I misplaced that Bugsy and uh, and another film last the last because does he have a does he have a he doesn't have a nose Dick in Tracy. this one. <laughs> Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy. Yes. I don't know why I think they're yeah, the same. I, I, I probably would have brought that up again if I were you, Matt. <laughs> All right. Good morning, okay. Vietnam. 
Oh, good, yes. Yeah, yeah, Good Morning yeah, Vietnam. Yeah, that's right. Which is a, uh, the first half of good, good, good Morning Vietnam is brilliant. The second half isn't, isn't so good. Yeah, great, I but, would agree with that. Uh, but that's, that's also pretty well shot. It's better shot. It's shot better than this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what happened. Maybe he was so captivated about the performances that he just kind of forgot the camera was wrong. Like, I don't know like, what happened here. Well, we keep saying that about directors, too. I think that, you know, if you've got two amazing talents right there, you can kind of let them do the work, maybe. I don't know. And his credit, he did get out of the way. These shots, sometimes, sometimes that, that bickering goes on for a long time, and yes. he just has faith. And he has faith that Tom Cruise will be likable enough, even though he's playing a despicable person. He steals Raymond. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, crazy. he's awful. I mean, he's just, you know, a heart, terrible. And he's just mean to Raymond at times. And, um, but he, but he has the confidence in Cruz and Hoffman to pull it off. And obviously they do. Yeah. 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 So th- there was something that I found kind of weird. The mute, the music to me, I really like, I, uh, I, this is a Zimmerman, um, Hans Zimmer, Hans Zimmer, sorry, Hans Zimmer. Uh, I'm just going to play a little bit of the, but this is this, this thing kind of has haunted me my entire life. This is very Peter Gabriel to me. Yeah, it is. Trags, yeah. you can hear this, right? Yeah, I can, and it's definitely Peter Gabriel. Right, doesn't uh, it? It very much feels I like that. Ish. Um, but the funny thing that I I thought was uh, they opened this film with this this Ico Ico song. Do you know Ico Ico on my grandma and your grandma yeah, sing yep. about that one? Like a uh, what? Yeah, I don't remember that. Uh, to be very honest, yeah. it's it's a tribal war song. Like I don't. I don't know why they, they were, went with that. It was like really strange. And then the rest really of strange it, song choices in this too. But the rest of it is like no lyrics. The rest of it, some of them are kind of rocky, like not like rock, uh, rock songs kind of, but yeah. just no lyrics. And then there's that beautiful one that I just played, the Zimmer one. Um, but that I thought the music was was kind of weird. Besides this this music, the piano one I just played. Yeah, so it's an odd movie with, with some of the music and some of the uh, the, the shot choices. It's definitely a strange one. So this was this one best picture. Like yeah, I said, yeah. it was up against Accidental Tourist, Dangerous Liaisons, yeah. Mississippi Burning, and Working Girl. I would say those are all good movies. Yeah. Um, but Rain Man to me is is the best of those five. Uh, but they all there's no stinger in that group though. You know no. what? I, Oh, well, God, I, right. I do think Mississippi burning probably would win in uh, in the day and age we're in now. That's a good. That's a, good, uh, yeah, you, that's a great I point. Think, I mean, though, though Rain Man certainly appeals to an element of society society that I think at the time was completely overlooked, and that's probably why Hollywood and the voters would embrace it at that particular time. Totally agree. I think you'd also never see a character like Charlie Babbitt exist in twenty twenty. You're probably right. Like he's Such way too hateable. Yeah. he'd be so he'd be so homogenized. Oh yeah, he grabbed his neck. He oh, like grabbed he, his neck and no, shook that, him. And that I've forgotten that that is absolutely correct. Calls him the R word a yeah, number of times. Yeah. He's 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 mean to him at times. You would never see that. You no. could uh, not make no. Rain Man the way they did back then. Now, no way. I don't think it would pass. And so we all agree that Dustin Hoffman's phenomenal in this. Yes. No, no. When I said Cruz was better, I'm just saying he's better by by you know by a very marginal amount. It's a very sure. small amount, rather. It's a, so here's who Hoffman was up against. Gene Hackman in Mississippi Burning. Yep. Tom Hanks in Big. Uh, hmm. Edward James Olmos in Stand and Deliver. And then Max von Sydow in Pell the Conqueror, which I, I, I will no admit, idea I have no that idea what that is. Yeah. Nope. So, I do not recall. <laughs> um, Ed, you know, Edward, those are all, those other four pretty iconic roles. Totally. Big uh, is a little strange. I mean, I like Tom. I'm a big Tom Hanks apologist, but that that's kind of a strange. That's he's strange. really good. In that he movie. is good, and, and that is what kind of movie that kind of put him on the map as far as awards go. This is sure. his first nomination. Um, but Dustin Hoffman, I, I don't remember. I was too young at the time to remember if Hoffman was the guy, the odds-on favorite. It kind of sucks that Tom Cruise didn't get a nomination, but this I think he should. Yeah, this they probably should have been held the conqueror. Other. You know, did. like <laughs> right. what are we doing here? Um, 
But maybe it's better. Maybe they would have split the votes otherwise. I don't know. I was looking at the Oscar nominations too. And did you know that Sigourney Weaver was nominated for two Oscars that year? Two that year? Two, yeah. Uh, I think um, maybe the, it was a supporting actress and some, something else. I, oh, Girls she, in the Mist for Best Girls actress. in the Mist. That's right. Yeah. I, oh, I maybe, was like, wow. Maybe uh, supporting actress for Working Girl. I think that's what it was. Oh, wow. That was a neat one. How about that, huh? That's Crazy. a good, good pull, man. Nice job. Thank you. Um, Trags, any other thoughts on Rain Man? No, I just, you know, it, it really, the hook for me was uh, Cincinnati and the acting in it from Dustin Hoffman. I, uh, I, I remember being uh, in the movie theater in Northern, Northern New York, a, a little town called Ogdensburg. It was my first uh, job uh, in radio. I was a news reporter up there and uh, I remember watching it on the big screen up there and going, Oh my God, Cincinnati has actually made it a big time. So. <laughs> how, how long did you, you grew up there? How long were you there for? I was there my first 18 years of existence oh, right. on Mother Earth. And I grew up a big Cincinnati Bengals and Reds fan. And of course, 88 was the last year that the Bengals uh, advanced to the Super Bowl. Oh, so, yes. right. And I don't want to steal your thunder, gentlemen, um, but the song that uh, I picked out. Steal it. Was Welcome to the jungle. <laughs> It's like one of the most iconic openings ever, too. And this is their opening. Yeah. This, this is their, their opening their for first Appetite. song and their first album. I know. It's amazing. I love it. With the scream. You're gonna die. <laughs> it's so good. Is this the best opening for any band ever? Like the first song, the first album. This just sets the... It, that was gonna be my question. I can't think of a better a better opening. I can't either. No. For such a... a better a, opening album? A, no. A, well, better opening uh, song to a first to album. To an opening album. To a first album. Yeah. No. I mean... And I used to host a uh, show in college uh, at Villanova uh, called Rock Year. And along... You know, when I first heard of this show, guys, I thought of my show in college. What'd you do? What I, yeah. I would do is I would pick out a particular year... Not a not a particular week like you guys do this in, in this format, but I would pick out a particular year, focus on two albums, and uh, and I had my Rolling Stone Rock and Roll Encyclopedia in front of me, and I would pick <laughs> out tidbits, and I would read from the tidbits, then go to the song on the air. I love that. That's got to great. I, I had that book. I don't know if they did multiple iterations of it, but when I, I remember that as did. a as a child, I, I definitely had that book. My mom had it. I love that thing. It just is my basement. When I through this pandemic, I've been going through all of my uh, sports memorabilia, my books, and my media guides, programs, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but my rock and roll stuff, I've saved pretty much all of it, and I'm getting a uh, new library up on the second floor. And uh, the rock and roll, the Rolling Stone rock and roll encyclopedia is definitely going to be part of that. <laughs> it's got to be. That's awesome. Yeah. That, I wonder where that went. My mom might still have that thing. I loved it. I loved reading about all the bands in there. That's real. I wish I had. I love, I would eat stuff like that up when I was a kid. I yeah. love stuff like that. I, I would have, if I had known that existed, I would have also gotten, that sounds like a great book. So what, let's start with Guns N' Roses in general. Some, I don't know. Sometimes I go kind of systematic, but let's, let's start with Guns N' Roses in general and kind of work our way down to the song. But this is, they're kind of a five-year band. Like their, their yes. five-year yeah. run is legitimately amazing yeah, right. and then that's kind of it right i always say that they're yeah. the they're the bo jackson of bands yeah their hip went out around year five yeah and but uh, their was peak it. was amazing yeah so did you like at the time appetite was not really critically acclaimed tracks and i sort of missed it like i'm i wasn't i was not no? on this side of the, yeah i mean i knew it but it wasn't my type of music i really liked folk music until later on it wasn't until my early 20s when I went back and, and this listened was to the Guns N' Roses. So these three songs, Paradise City, yeah, Love yeah. in the Jungle, and what's the other one? Uh, 
uh, Parasite, and, and Sweet Child Train. of Mine. Sweet Child of Mine. So those three songs are the first songs I remember listening to thinking like, this oh, is- Sweet Child of Mine, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. This is different than what my parents listened to. Like, this is my- Totally like, different. This is like, this was cool. I was like, I was eight years old, seven years old. Yeah. And I remember just like thinking like, this is awesome. Yeah. Uh, and I was really, I was all in. Like, those three songs, my buddies listen to all the time. This yeah. Is, this is the first album that was like uniquely mine. Track, so they got kind of panned by the critics at the time, but Track, did you like them immediately? Oh, yeah. You did? I mean- I mean, as soon as I heard the, the, the album, I'm like, oh, this is, and I, you, and back then, even back then, um, I was like a child of the seventies cause my brother was, uh, uh, like a roadie for the Eagles, like way oh, really? back in the seventies. And, um, you know, everything to me was all about the seventies, but the second I heard this album, I'm like, oh my God, this is an epic I, I immediately thought Led Zeppelin. That's kind of yeah. what came into my mind I can obviously, see that. because of the guitar work uh, on it. And it's uh, obviously hard rock, heavy metal, but the, the guitar work on it was pretty spectacular. Slash is like 23 years old when this comes out too. He is a monster talent for such a kid. I mean, they're all young, but Axel's like three or four years older. They're more, most, most of them are a little bit older than Slash's, but Sla- Slash was added. I think he was the last one added. They had Tracy Guns, I think first was there uh, from uh, LA Guns. That's that was the guns part of the Guns and Roses. Apparently. Oh, really? Yeah, okay, yeah. All right. So he left. I think he had a problem with Axel. You know, no. Axel. No. It's, you know, it happens. All uh, right. And then they they incorporated one of the other members. I, don't, I can't remember if it was Izzy or Duff played with with uh, Slash in a different band. It was sort of this like incestual band, like musician pool kind of thing. So they, they, they grabbed Slash, and he was he was young. He's twenty three years old, and he just fucking ripped. I have two, ripped. Yep. I have two questions for you guys. Yeah. One, do you, yes or no, do you guys consider Guns N' Roses a, a hair, a hair band, like a hair metal Such band? Such a great question. Mm, I, yes, I do. I, I, I do. Matt? So this is what I think. I think the reason why they work so well is because they are more poppy than something like Megadeth or Metallica, who are yep. very choppy, but, but very, he- like good chops, but very, very heavy. How, but more edgy than, say, Aerosmith or... Um, like Van Halen at the time. I love that right? uh, analogy. Yeah, and I, so, I, I think that is like spot on because my my problem with the hair band uh, genre is I think the image outweighed the music most yeah, of the time. Exactly, right. exactly. Where with Guns N' Roses, the first thing you notice is the music, absolutely and the shredding, and, and and the voices and and slash and and all of that, um, and Adler. Um, and I thought their music really made a louder uh, statement uh, than the way they looked. But the way they looked certainly <laughs> um, translated into a hairband type of uh, yeah. format. But they looked at this uh, like the sign of the times. They definitely did. But I don't consider. I don't think of them as a hairband because that's why, of their. That's skin. my follow question. So yeah. they are a hairband. If they are a hairband, then are they the best ever? I say absolutely yes. Oh yeah. If they are, then they oh, they are absolutely the best. N- no question. No question. They yeah. they are the best. Uh, by you know by by a mile. Right. I, I, I think they're, they're really good. Would, here uh, would uh, pipe up and say uh, Motley Crue, but n- Guns N' Roses over oh. Motley Crue. Yeah, I'm absolutely. Sorry. No argument here. Yeah, the crew can't can't touch them no. at all. Um, their musicianship is pretty pretty amazing. The only the only thing with with Guns N' Roses, they're kind of hit or miss. Like we went over the album Lies, um, which yes. was the second album. Oh uh, yeah, on the YouTube show. Right, because yeah. we did uh, Patience, I think. That's right. So yeah, not I am not a fan, by the way. No, no, no. It, that's oh, the not song a good tracks or the album, the both. song, the song. 
Yeah, oh, it's okay. all right. The album's that, not good. The yeah. album is not good. The album stinks. It's like they, it's like all of their B songs yeah. that they never could put on a, like another album. They never would. The structures are nowhere near as good. They're very boring songs compared to Appetite. Appetite for Destruction. If you listen to, um, if you listen to Welcome to the Jungle, it's like eight or nine parts in this song. It's not it's verse, no, chorus, bridge, done. It is a ton of different parts. It's crazy. The music, like the writing on this is, is just killer. It takes a couple of pass. It does. Like that you don't expect. It's it's a really good song. Yeah. So I, I just think, I mean, I, they're sort of hit, a miss, hit or miss like that. But in, but in this particular album, there it's a fucking hit. So sold 30 million copies. This is uh, like, this is a uh, 10th or 11th most oh my biggest God. selling album yeah. uh, in America. Um, just like crushed everything. Every like, yeah, this it, is just this huge. There's three songs were everywhere. It was everywhere. None of them hit. Wait, I don't think anyone hit number. Oh no. Uh, Sweet child of mine hit one. That's what it was. But everything else hit five. I think uh, five was set. This one's seven. This one's seven. And yep. then five, I think was uh, paradise city. Okay. Makes sense. Is it tracks? Is this your favorite on the album? Is welcome to the jungle your favorite? Yes. Uh, no, no, no. It is my second favorite, What's Paradise it? City. It Paradise City. Yeah. Interesting. I love Paradise City. It's a good song, no doubt. But I think Sweet Child of Mine is my favorite. Uh, I'm with Trags, I think. Uh, it's, it's, this is like Welcome to Jungle and Paradise City are like 1 and 1A. Really? And then, yeah. It's, it's honestly, for me, though, is these, those three songs are so intertwined in they my are. brain. They're like, I almost yeah. had them as like one giant song in a way. Yeah. I, maybe cause I was so young when I heard them and I was so influenced by them. Like I was like, Oh, I'm it just, this was like the epitome of cool when I was eight years old. Yeah, I agree. I want to play this one thing. This is uh this is slash. Just that nice. Like he's just got a little, you know, four bars, eight bars and just rip, just rips it up. He's just so good in this. So this album this album was kind of a pain for them to do. Uh, apparently, they um, they recorded like most of the background tracks, sort of the the like the rhythm guitars and the drums and the bass in like six days. But then it took the ret like it took a month for Axel to painstakingly go through and record line by line every single song. So he would record. I did not know that. Yeah, he recorded one line. He would say, mm, "That's not good enough." Record that one line again. Mm, that's not good enough over and over until he got it right. And then he would record the next line. He was so meticulous and it, you can wow. hear it because when you hear him live, I mean, no, a lot of times vocalists live aren't going to be quite as good as they are, you know, cause you can overdub and you can put stuff together. But, but he, you, you can tell like he sounds amazing on this album, probably as best as he could possibly sound because of how painstakingly it, it, it you know, it was for him to do it. Um, also, it cost $370,000 to do in one month. Like, they just recorded the entire month. Three hundred. That's a crazy that's amount a of, money of money for a debut album right? in a genre that you're not quite sure. Like, this is kind of a transitionary time in music, too. You're not quite sure well, if this is going to work. This wasn't supposed to be a hit. They played this no. video at 5 a.m. That's right. Uh, and uh, MTV like, had an agreement. They had to play it once, and they just chucked it out there. And they got so many phone calls asking to see it again. They had to air it again. And then it, then the ball was just off. But like this wasn't supposed to be a, a sensation. It wasn't. No. The other thing I want to say is Slash has one of the best guitar tones I've ever heard in my entire life. He's probably in my top three guitar tones. He's got a beautiful... It's a, it's a Gibson Les Paul, which I love the Les Paul. I have Les Paul. I love him. Uh, through Marshall Amp, and his tone is amazing. The only two... I was trying to think of the only two people whose guitar tone I like more. I'm not a huge fish fan, but Trey, 
the guitarist from Fish has got an amazing tone. Right. And Brian May from Queen has got, he's probably got the best tone I've ever heard in my entire life. It's amazing stuff. Well, I, I guess to me, and I, I said earlier, like when I heard Guns N' Roses, the first thing I thought was Led Zeppelin. Yeah. What made Guns N' Roses so spectacular is not just their sound and their shredding and, and the vo- the range of their vocals but and uh, Axel, but um, there had been nothing like them before. I mean, you, it, it's very, very hard to compare them to, I guess, Aerosmith, right? And yeah, kind of, yeah. But yeah. They, they're just, they were very, so unique in what they did. That's what set them apart for me. I, you know, I'm eight or nine. You know, I, you know, I watch MTV like everyone else did. But, like, when I heard them, it was almost like when I heard Nirvana for the first time. Yeah. It was like, I've never heard anything like this before. This is so enthralling. What is this new sound? It, the, those two artists, for me, maybe because of where I was in my, you know, growing up, but... Those two times in my life where I'm like, I've never heard this before. I need to hear it again. Right. And I love that. That's, that's what I love most about music. You know, I get bored easy. We right. talk, we talk about, you know, particularly adult contemporary music and it's just, it just sounds like the same over and over. Or if we hear a, a recycled, <laughs> right, exactly. Or like a recycled rock tune. We talked about that, you know, yep. last time. Um, but anytime you get a situation where you're like, you can't identify what this is, you can't put it in a, you can't compartmentalize it and put it in a specific box. Cause it sort of transcends them. It's so exciting to hear that yeah. in music. That's what I, that's so, what I so my, my, uh, stepson is, uh, had just, just graduated Berkeley and, um, right on. What does he, what's he play? Uh, well, he is a music producer and he writes right on and he, he plays the piano. Uh, but uh, he, always told me what I'm trying to do is create something nobody's ever heard before. Yeah. With sounds nobody's ever used before. And I'm like, that is, I mean, and the kid's only 22, but he's already out in LA and he's um, writing uh, with this uh, group called smile. SMLE. Yeah. So uh, I want to get a plug in there for Nick Smith. I, he, sure. He's just, he's really freaking brilliant at a, at a young age, but he gets that whole concept that yeah, it's one thing to make music, to make money. It's another to make music, uh, to become, you know, somebody that nobody has ever heard before. So it's made stuff that nobody has ever heard before. And that's a lot harder, but a lot more artistically, I think, impressive. Yeah. And we've talked about this on the show too, before that there's really only, there's only 12 notes in music. That's it. And yes, they repeat in octaves or whatever, but that's, that, those are the, that's the building blocks that, that we have to work with. It's a very, it's a very unique style of art, I think, because of how like limited your building blocks are. And then, you know, the uniqueness comes from not only how you combine them and in what order, but how you combine them horizontally. So how you stack them on each other and, and how you, how you express them in time. And then the lyrics and the production and the sounds you use, that's where like sort of the uniqueness comes. And, uh, and a lot of, you know, a lot of the top 40 that we listen to it's, they don't, they they just sort of re- recycle what they've already heard. They don't, they don't try to find a unique way to, to put those, put those notes. Um, and yeah, I applaud anybody who does try to, cause that's, that's what way, makes it fun. By the way, yeah. you know, who was supposed to be the Berkeley, um, lead performer this year for their graduation, which, um, my stepson would have been a part of oh. John Mayer. Oh, I like John Mayer. That's, no, it's tough for his son. He's oh, it is tough for, yeah. He great ceremonies. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I like John yeah. Mayer, though. Yeah. Because as, as you know, Berkeley always has brings in, you know, uh, Quincy Jones or whoever it would right. be. Right, yeah. Uh, 
in years past and put puts on a concert for the graduation and just kind of sucks. Uh, but that does suck. That does suck. Mayor was there for a little while. I don't, I'm not sure if he graduated, but I know he was there at Berkeley. He attended, but did not graduate. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty, that's, that happens a lot with Berkeley. I looked at Berkeley too. It was really expensive. And I just said, you know, I'm, you know, this is not, I'm not like virtuoso on my instrument. So I'm just gonna, I'm going to go to UNH instead. I think it worked out. Okay. I get to do a podcast. You, with you this do, you're, doing, you're doing great, Matt. Uh, so, Trax, uh, now you picked this. You picked this song. You're we, we, yes. for a reason. You said how like a Cincinnati tied to it. Maybe you kind of let us know about that. Oh yeah, right, Bengals. Th- yes. Thanks, Matt. So the the whole idea of this was Rain Man, half shot in Cincinnati. Welcome to the jungle. That was the Cincinnati Bengals theme song uh, at the old Riverfront Stadium, and that was the year they made the Super Bowl. And I was watching all of this, you know. 800 miles away or 700 miles away and freezing my fucking ass off in Northern New York <laughs> in my first radio job. It was miserable, but at least that got me through my first couple of, or my first winter uh, in Northern New York. I, I tell you what, it was cold as hell. It was the coldest I've ever been in my life. It yeah. was like, it was not uncommon for overnights to be uh, 40 below <sighs> with wind chills of 55 to 60 below. And you would have to plug in your car You'd have to fucking plug in your, and if you didn't, you weren't going to work that morning. And there were a couple mornings where I forgot to plug in my old uh, Volkswagen rabbit and I got screwed. Was that your first job out of college? It was. So it was WSLB uh, and WPAC in Ogdensburg. The pack. The pack 93. (laughs) So when, so at this point, we always like to kind of say where we were at this time. So um, you, you, what, you just graduated that, that, like that from summer Villanova in 88. Uh, that is correct. And how long were you in upstate New York for? Uh, from let's see, July of 88 through, um, I want to get this right. August of 92. Then I worked a year in Canton, Ohio at WHBC, uh, and then moved, uh, to Boston in, uh, the summer of August of 93. And I've been here ever since. That's beautiful. Uh, so with, the upstate New York experience. I think that's kind of unique and, and fun. And oh, you've had it. I've had it too. Not as long as not. And I didn't say in the winter. Uh, I was in, I was outside of Albany in a town called Glens Falls after college for a summer. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, but so where you were there, like was the weather, the, what was the best and worst part of living in upstate New York during that time? Okay. I would say the best part was the scenery and driving around the, uh, we were on the foothills of the Adirondacks and the Tug Hill plateau and, Alexandria Bay, the St. Lawrence, where the St. Lawrence River meets Lake Ontario. It's just spectacular in the summer. So gorgeous. Thousand Islands and all of that. Worst part, um, it'd have to be not necessarily the cold, but the isolation. There was no one around. And there was, for me, no dating scene. No social life, ah. zero. And as a 22-year-old American male, that was difficult. That's, That's without question. That That's was the tough. hardest part for me. So, what was the job? What were you on air at that uh, at that station? Yes, I was. Yeah, and what? Tell right. me, what was the job? Uh, news reporting. I covered um, St. Lawrence County um, government meetings. Uh, Ogdensburg City Council. I went into Ontario to cover a couple of news stories and then uh, became sports director position I created for myself so I could cover Syracuse University basketball and football. <laughs> Wasn't that smart? There you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's essentially what I did for And I also did that in Watertown, New York, which is 65 miles due north of uh, Syracuse. 
Was that kind of the main was Syracuse sports, the main sports? You yeah. Know, that you, I like, mean, Syracuse sports up there is like yeah. pro sports. Huge. Yeah. It's, it's like Alabama down in, in Birmingham, like the university of Alabama. It's the same thing. Did you ever consider staying in upstate New York? Were you always kind of looking at it as a kind of a stepping stone to a bigger market? Oh, it was always a stepping stone. I, yeah. I literally could not handle the, the isolation. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the people. I'll give you that much. But, you know, between the unemployment, which they were going through a hard time in the late 80s and um, the cold and the dark and the lack of, you know, I didn't know anybody. It was hard to meet people. That was another thing. Um, I wasn't going to stay there. I had, a, I had a similar experience when I was in upstate New York. I didn't know anybody. It was really hard to meet people. I also looked at it as a stepping stone. I was there for a much shorter time and, and you were, but I was there just for a few months, but it was just, it wasn't, it, I just, it was just so hard to kind of go somewhere by yourself in, in a smaller, more blue collar, more, you know, everyone had kind of already had their friends and their networks and their, yeah. their worlds. I was definitely the odd man out. And, um, it, it was, I, I look back at that time fondly cause I have good memories from it, but I don't, I couldn't imagine him staying there much longer than I did. I I almost had an up upstate uh, New York experience too. I almost went to Syracuse. I was I was close. I got into the music school, but it was so expensive, and I got a better yeah. deal at UNH in Adelphi. I just decided not to do that. But the day that I went and toured, they told me this is the only sun. It was in the winter. This is the only sunny day we've had in like three months, and I was like, oh, oh just oh, gray, gray forever. Wait, wait a second, <laughs> it was the fucking worst. <laughs> yeah. So did you, were you, did you like moving to Boston? Like, were you happy to come to Boston after? I was because uh, remember, you know, at that time, uh, none of the teams had, had started their, you know, tour of uh, domination oh, right. in their particular sport. And, uh, you know, I could make a, a place for myself covering the Red Sox, which is really what I did. Red Sox and Patriots is what I did most of the time. Uh, and then, uh, by this time, my, the second winter came around, like in the winter of 94 and the 95, I started doing really picking up the Bruins and Celtics and doing some Boston College and then started building my own sports radio business. That's awesome. Um, now, what we usually do in the show is headlines. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I was looking kind of through some, I looked through the old New York Times of this week and it looked like a lot of people at the end of the last week in 88 we're kind of excited about George Bush going into office. He had picked, he was starting to appoint people and it just seemed to be a general like, Oh, this is kind of an interesting to have a new president on hand. Do you remember anything around that time during that kind of transition period between Reagan and Bush? I, I was only eight. I don't remember a ton. Not really. I mean, I, I just remember that he was, that Reagan was so popular uh, that uh, Bush was going to win by default essentially. And that uh, I believe 88 was when he beat Dukakis, right? Yep. Yep. That's and right. it was more Bush winning by default. And, uh, but I don't remember anything. It's funny. I, you know, that, that period between the end of Reagan and the beginning of Clinton was kind of nondescript. I mean, I, I don't remember anything about it. There was, I get, well, no, that's, that's wrong. The Gulf war. Yeah. That, yeah. But right. that hadn't started until I want to say late 1990. Yeah, we covered that in one of our um, shows, that's right? Mid nineteen ninety, something like yeah, that. So yeah. there was about a year and a half where it was pretty much everything was quiet. I guess things were were building up in the Gulf, but not to the point uh, that it was like in you know a couple of years later. No, the, even looking through the news articles at that time, I know it was a holiday week, so it's going to be slower anyway. Sure, but it just didn't seem like there was a ton going on. Like like he appointed no. Liz Dole, uh, Bob Dole's wife, right. to be the labor secretary. 
And that was like major front page above the full news. <laughs> I was like, a labor secretary appointment, kind of a big deal, I guess. But should that be that big of a deal? Like, there, was, there was just nothing really going on. Um, and I, you know, I, I, obviously I know the Berlin I Wall fell. for those days. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah, I know. absolutely. Yeah. yeah uh, I, having covered Bill Belichick for as long as I have, the one thing he taught me and I've learned from him, drama is not your friend. And the drama that is constantly in the, in the news, social media, it just wears on you. And I just, you know, I, I, I kind of long for those days of, you know, Elizabeth Dole being the lead story above the <laughs> fold in the New York Times. It's what's kind of fun about doing this show, especially during like coronavirus time or whatever, is it is a fun distraction, like to go back and like look at how things were and yeah. talk about old, like it's just fun sometimes just to kind of look back, like look back at this time in history. Cause we're on Saturday, we're back, we're doing Rain Man and we're doing a poison song. What are we, are doing? we doing a poison song? I yeah. don't even remember. Anymore. I think it is, but no, we're doing, I'm sorry, doing Pun. twins. Oh, twins. Twins on Saturday and, yeah. uh, and a poison song. Might be every rose has a story. It's what it is. Every, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's just kind of fun to go look through these like moments in time and see what was popular and kind of what was going on. Uh, it's nice. It's, uh, and it is weird to juxtapose it with today where you have the president tweeting every three minutes and yeah, it's just constant barrage. I feel like we're in such a bizarre time for me. I just turn it off. <laughs> yeah. Turn it out. I, I, I don't blame me. I barely watch the news anymore myself. But. Oh, I don't see it. Yeah, 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 I'm good. Do you, have, uh, do you have any more headlines from that? That's pretty, oh, because there's a Gulf War was the second thing. Uh, no, no, the Gulf War happened later. But, oh, that's right. Uh, really, yeah. I just wanted to kind of get a, a general idea. It was a holiday week. was a ton going on. I just kind of want to get an idea or feel for maybe uh, what, what, how, uh, how Trags looked at things as well. Yeah, cool. Um, Trags, any uh, any parting thoughts? Anything you want to promote uh, before we, we call the I show? I appreciate you asking. Yeah, the Patriots Beat podcast. I am a podcast host myself on the CLNS Media Network, and uh, it uh, drops every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. And uh, you have the best uh, and the biggest uh, writers around uh, New England covering the New, New England Patriots, and uh, that's what I do pretty much every week, even during the pandemic, trying to find new ways to – be creative during all this and that's called patriots beat patriots beat perfect cool well tracks thanks so much for coming and doing the show with us uh it was a lot of fun i enjoyed this guys thank you thanks tracks <laughs>